Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm joined by Sarah Heston and Peter Kelly. Together at Stanford, Sarah and Peter, among other projects and teaching, assemble the Stanford Search Fund study that is released every other year on even years. The study is widely considered the go-to resource for learning about search funds and is often the first resource shared with folks considering the path. The first study in 1996 was only two pages long, and the 2022 study released in July is over 30 pages, reflecting both the growth in the search fund model and increased availability of data. Our conversation covers the purpose of the study, its evolution since 1996, a half dozen interesting trends they have observed among search funds, characteristics of ideal searchers, and data sets they want to add to the study in future years. Enjoy. Well, thank you both for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about the Stanford Search Study. It's kind of the go-to Bible for search fund data information and introductions for people. It's often the first link that I send anyone or friends of mine send folks when they are explaining search for the very first time. But I would love to kind of start with the the background of the study. What were kind of what was kind of the general purpose of it? When did it come out? And just what's the broad kind of background of this search fund study? It started. Sarah, can I take this? Go for it. Since I was in the community, the head down trying to run a company. It started in the mid '90s. Irv Grospec started it. You can still find the original one out there. If not, we can send it to you. It's very, it's more rudimentary, but the idea was just to help investors understand what the heck this new thing was and really what the returns were from it. Were they good or not? Or what did they look like? So that's how it started. And then we've done it. I say we, because I contributed my data for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And then I took over, then I sort of helped run the study. And now I run it with Sarah you know, we just added more questions and more data along the way. But it really just started with, hey, what's the IRR? How many of these are there? What's the IRR? What's the return on invested capital? And some basics. And to add a little more background on, on what we cover in the study, it's, it's focused on traditional searchers in the U.S. and Canada. And we aim to include all known traditional searchers. So 99% of those that have ever run a traditional search. We don't include self-funded or single sponsor or anybody outside the U.S. and Canada. Our partner ESA in Barcelona captures them in a, in a similar study that should be out soon. So that's, that's the ecosystem of search in which we focus on in this study. By the way, I, I, that the ESA study we do in collaboration with the essay. I'm in charge of that. And Sarah helps with it also, or sort of advises the the person who does that at the essay with me. Gotcha. That's excellent. Looking forward to seeing that study as well. Let's kind of outline the purpose and vision for the, for the study and different goals for it. It sounds like it was originally for investors, but I would love to hear how has that audience, you know, that intended audience for the study evolved or changed over time? And what are some broad goals for the study? Our intent is to report really accurate and timely information 
on real-time trends that we're seeing in the search community. And, and this is useful across the whole spectrum of those involved in search. So for prospective searchers, they use it to help explore if search is right for them to truly understand what it is, what's necessary for it, and to make the decision if they, they want to do it. For current searchers, they use it to help negotiate terms with investors, identify trends that might help them in their search, such as changes in multiples or industries. And investors use it also to identify trends, but also understand what's going on in returns. And then for those that are institutional investors to communicate to their investors. The studies used throughout the community to inform those that maybe aren't a part of the community yet what search is all about and how it works. And, and so it helps kind of bring new people in into the world of search. The first, the first study, as Peter said, was about two pages long, and it's really evolved since, since then. This current study is 30 pages long. So we've added a lot of content over the years. Originally, we, we talked a lot about how to approach a search and what is search. And some of that content, we've now moved to our primer, which you can download from the Stanford website for free. And it has a lot of information on how to run a search. But the goal of this study is really to focus on recent trends and, and returns and, and report that out every two years. Some things we've added over time include information on seller demographics, which we added in 2018. This study, we added a lot more on searcher background, as well as more detail around acquisition multiples. So questions rarely get dropped from the study. We don't like to take things out, but we do, we do tend to add a few new ones each cycle. No, the audience has just expanded really, I mean, to include, of course, searchers so they can, they've used it to raise capital to show why it's an attractive place to invest. And lately, because a couple of years ago, we, we started asking them how much money they were making from it themselves. They've used it to decide whether to do it because they can sort of see what the potential outcomes are. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it sounds like, a, so talking about different decisions being made with the information. It sounds like searchers are using it to decide whether they want to search and then what are typical terms. It sounds like investors use it for the same kind of term ideas or, or baselines. What are some other decisions you've seen being made with this study information? I mean, people try and make the decision whether to partner or not with data, though I think that's really more of a personal decision. It's based on your own style and how you want to approach this kind of entrepreneurship. They also, I think, try and decide about industries, where to, what industries to focus on. Maybe, I mean, I think it helps set the terms like how many investors should I have and how much money should I raise? How much money can I raise? How much can I pay myself during the search? Just the, just the I'll say the recipe of a median search doesn't reflect any many actual searches, but it does guide their decisions on kind of how to get started. Yeah, I've heard prospective searchers that, that use it to really understand, is it right for them? Looking at the backgrounds of the searchers that we report on, what, what did they do before their search? How old are they? What type of education do they have? And, and figuring out that it's you know a wide mix of people that get into search and helping that to determine if it's right or, or wrong for them. And it sounds like the methodology is survey-based, sending out surveys to 
the traditional searchers in the Stanford network and other networks. I imagine that contributes to the every other year cadence for the study. I know it's a ton of ton of work to put these studies together. What's that methodology like and how is that how does that influence kind of timing of the study? Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of work. What we do is is in the two-year period in between, we have an ongoing dialogue with the investor community on who they're meeting with, what searchers they're backing. I get lists from probably 12 different investors on everybody they've met with, whether they've backed them or not, and work through it to figure out who launched searches. And from that, we determine who in that year launched a traditional search fund. And then when in in a study year, so in January of this year, we launched our survey. We sent it out to everybody. So the new searchers, the searchers we knew from the last cycle, the CEOs that are still operating to collect all sorts of data. And our goal really is 100% participation. Sometimes we have one or two that don't participate for various reasons because of sensitive time in the cycle. Well, they might be selling their business and, and not want to share certain data, but we really aim to get everybody to participate. And because we capture searchers in the very beginning, we think we avoid a kind of bias towards only including successful searchers because they're there at the start when no one knows who's going to buy a company or not. And we track them through the whole cycle. We really rely on the investor community to help us contact those we can't find and you know identify who's who's out there. That's why it takes six months to to get the, the whole study done. We spend a lot of time just collecting data and then scrubbing the data to make sure it's it's accurate and it makes sense. And then a couple of months of analysis and writing. Yeah, then you mentioned going from two pages to this latest one being 30. That's a ton of you know marginal work compared to that two-page study. I would love to know what are some of the most notable things you've been adding over the years to the study that that push it up to 30 pages. There's now a very long, you know, appendix with lots of lots of different tables and sets of data that are really interesting to read through. It's it's very easy to spend an hour or two just reading through the appendix alone. I would love to know like what what has been the evolution of the data that's included in the study. The data actually hasn't changed much in 20 years. We've added new questions the last few cycles and we've taken out some questions too. And I can't remember, we try not, we're working hard to not make it longer, especially after the last, over the last six years. So we take out some stuff and we add some stuff. For instance, we've added information on the demographics, on the ethnic and racial demographics of searchers. We've added, maybe six years ago, we added questions about board members and which board members were most helpful or not. And we saw no patterns over a couple cycles, so we don't focus on that anymore. We've added questions about, as I mentioned earlier, about what the equity returns are for the searchers themselves. We didn't have that 20 years ago, but a lot of the data in the back, age, background, industry background has been the, has been the same. Sarah will think of some, will know of some others that we've added along the way, but it's, I'd say the survey was 80% the same 20 years ago. We just have much more data now. So we have much better insight into what works and what doesn't work. And then we've taken and added, taken out some things, added some things. And I love the things we've added. For instance, this year we added, you know, what was your perception of the honesty of your, of the person you bought the company from, what we call the seller. 
And how long did that person stay involved with the company after the close of the acquisition? I think that's instructive. So we, we add things like that. Let me stop there. Yeah, we've provided a bit more clarity or detail around returns. And so we've added some more charts on those. Also bound industry, both what industries searchers are purchasing companies in, as well as what industries they're looking at while searching. So we, we continue to try to put more clarity and, and share more information around that. Seller demographics was a new one we added a few years ago. The age of sellers and, and kind of what their background are. We shared a lot in 2018 on that or 2020, a little less this time because it's not really changing. So we try to share new things as we, we come across them. But if they're not changing trends or, or things we, we think are really insightful to, to keep a chart in for, we, we kind of scale it back and try to put something else in to, to keep it fresh and, and, and insightful and, and share as much as we can from what we, we can take out of the data that we're seeing. And as Peter said, over time, as we have more and more data, because there's more and more searchers, we can start to glean some new insights and some new trends. Is there one main source for new sets of data that you add or new ideas for data? Do you get these ideas from investors or searchers who maybe ask you, maybe you get like a couple of questions that are around this same topic and you think, oh, okay, like maybe we'll add that in the next study. Like where do these ideas come from for new data sets and questions and information? We just survey, say six months or nine, six months before we start the survey, we just ask people who are deeply involved in the community. So repeat investors, frequent investors, and entrepreneurs. What what is what do you think is interesting? What do you think is important? For the most part, we for the last couple of years, we haven't gotten a lot of new things. So but we always ask that. And the I guess the and I'll give you an example of that in a sec. The other thing we do is just think about we run regression analyses. Sarah's really good at this and she she tries to look for correlations in all the data from before so that we can try and figure out what makes a successful search entrepreneur, what makes a successful search acquisition, what qualities of the company or the entrepreneur or the investors are leading to either better outcomes or, or bad outcomes. Just so we, just so people can learn, we just want to shine a light on this. And as it turns out, it looks, the returns look attractive and it's a, can be a great path for people. But those are the two sources. We ask every, everybody who we think who's interested and engaged, and we look for correlations, and then we dive deeper. Is that fair, Sarah? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, Peter and I spent a lot of time in thinking about search, interacting with prospective searchers, current searchers, investors. And so, you know, I think we always kind of have an ear open to, to what's going on and what are people talking about or interested in. And then we really reach out and, and start asking the questions as we get close to the, to the study launch to make sure we're capturing kind of what's new, what's different, what are people asking questions about? Yeah. And in regards to the what's new, what's different, there's I think a half dozen trends that we've talked about before that are interesting to follow as the studies come out. I would love to hear from the two of you, what are some interesting trends that you've noticed and you, you're paying special attention to as you create the study and have conversations based on the study? 
Yeah. So, so one trend is searcher ethnicity and, and gender. And we added ethnicity for the first time this year. So we can't report out on a trend there, but are excited to track that going forward. And then amongst gender female searchers, we're 13% of the searchers who launched in 2021. And we're excited to see a positive trend there. The community has really embraced the need for increased diversity. And we've seen a lot of support for both women and people of color in the last few years. And so that's, that's a trend where we have an eye on and it's, it's moving in the right direction. And we, we hope to see that continue. Another trend is in industries. So software and tech-enabled services have been popular industries for a number of years. But those are really broad buckets. The actual businesses within the software category touch on a really wide range of underlying industries. Software in today's world is is kind of more like a business services. Peter, do you want to add something on that? Uh, I mean, software sort of technology was a new category 10 or 15 years ago. And some people thought it wouldn't, including some very smart people, thought it would not be a good place for search funds. Maybe because they thought it it changed too fast and was too technical and there was too much risk. And I think what we've realized, partly because those industries have evolved, is that it's not really an industry. Technology is not an industry. It's a method of delivering things. One of those is software and it's a way of delivering business-to-business services, for instance. It's super powerful. So... You know, as we've understood what technology really means in terms of different industries and different business models, we have looked at, we have been able to tease that out in the data and in the questions we've asked and the data we've gotten back from, from searchers. One thing that a lot of these businesses all do have in common, though, even though they may touch a wide variety of industries, that makes them attractive to a searcher is that they are good industries that are growing they have recurring or repeat revenue and stable customer bases. So there are certain things that they do share in common, if not the same kind of headline industry. Another, another interesting trend that we've seen is returns. We saw returns in the 2022 study increase to 35.3% IRR from 326 in the 2020 study. This somewhat matches the broader market that has also been strong, but reflects the maturity of the search model and better understanding about what makes search successful. We're happy to see that the search, as the search community grows, there's still a focus on high quality businesses with good returns. And searchers are learning from past experiences what to avoid and best practices. There's more information out there to prepare a searcher and support them, such as podcasts like this. So that you know, we're seeing better returns within the industry and, and partially because or, or mostly because searchers are, are really well prepared as they're going into it. I'd be curious just diving into the returns question a little bit more. There's definitely a ton more content out there about search and about what searches have worked really well and business models that work and investors have had a lot of experience investing in search. Are there any, you mentioned, obviously software was a big trend that we just talked about a little bit. Do you think that has any influence on returns as well? Or is this more of a a broad kind of search refinement in terms of strategy and businesses to look for? And that's the bulk of the driver of those increasing returns. Our data hasn't shown yet which is the biggest piece of the increase in returns. But I would say... In general, people are just, there are more people buying good companies or 
good companies in really good industries. Software as a business model and way of delivering value is one of those that's really, really powerful. So that for sure is driving some of them, but not some of the returns, some of the sort of, well, they're slightly higher returns now than they were in the last study and sort of I think the one surprising trend, which isn't, is just that the returns have held up, even though so many more people are doing search. And I think Sarah's absolutely right. Part of that is because there's more content, there are more classes and business schools on it. There's lots of sharing about that. The best practice is we just know better what a good company to buy is. Part of it, but some of the great returns you're seeing lately that more than 10x returns are coming from not technology businesses, but healthcare and education and business services. So it's not just that, that's, that's keeping the returns high and bumping them up even a little bit from the last study. But software is a great business model if you can do it right. And unlike 20 years ago, when maybe you, you needed coders, developers were really hard to find and hard to manage. Now there's some software businesses or software enabled businesses or tech enabled businesses where you can get the technical talent. There's a pool, there's a deep pool you can find it. You, it's not the technology is not changing that fast that you can't base a business on it and not be a technical CEO yourself. So, answer is coming from different things. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, Sarah. Do you think there's anything else besides buying better companies, including healthcare and education and software that's been really good? Anything else that's keeping returns up and maybe bumping them up in the last since the last study? No, I, I haven't seen anything jump out in the data that, that really points to that. You know, we've seen overall multiples go up across you know, private equity and whatnot. But, I, I, you know, I think searchers are just, they've, they've stayed really focused. They've figured out how to use their investor networks wisely to support them as they're building the businesses. And I think investors, having been through multiple cycles, have a lot more to kind of give and support give to support searchers. So, you know, I, I think that the model, it's not just understanding better companies, but kind of the whole ecosystem is, is refining and, and improving. And one other trend that you pointed out was, or we, we pointed out in you know our earlier discussion was multiples increasing. And you just mentioned it there again. I wonder how much of the multiples increasing, maybe your data says this, how much of that do you think is the broader market or bull market for the last, you know, 10 odd years versus searchers just finding better companies and those higher quality companies are just higher, need higher prices to close. Like do you, where do you think the multiples increasing is being driven by? Yeah, we saw the, the price to EBITDA multiple in the current study go up to 7.3 from six in the previous study. And Peter and I've had a lot of chats about this in, in terms of trying to understand, you know, <laughs> trying to answer the question you just asked. It, it, some of it could just be better businesses being bought and they're going to go for higher multiples. And, you know, I think some of it is is part of where we are in the cycle and that debt has been cheap and capital has been available. And so, and you know, searchers have been able to pay a bit more. They've been able to finance it easier. Peter, go ahead, go ahead and jump in on this well, one, those too. Are ent- those are entry mul- multiples that you're talking about, Sarah, and that's absolutely right. And I think those are the right reasons. The exit multiples are higher. We don't. The data doesn't tell us. You can't tell how much the exit multiples are higher than they used to be because of the market or whatnot. Certainly, some of it's the market. Private. There's a lot more private equity than there was 20 years ago, say, and 
They're willing to pay up for good businesses, and those businesses stay private for much, much longer. They don't go public for a lot longer. But we, so we look at this all the time. But, but really, these are just terrific companies that are getting built. And these, you don't for, remember what's happening is an entrepreneur is usually buying a company from an owner who has five roles in the company and is central and key to that company's success. And then the entrepreneur is building a team and they're growing the business. So they're professionalizing the management further. They're systematizing everything. They're making it more of a stable company and they're growing it a lot. So it's both bigger and growing more consistently. And it's got a more reliable long-term flow of cash coming from it. That kind of business is just worth more. (laughs) There are also many instances or some instances, kind of the 10x returns maybe, where entrepreneurs are finding adjacencies and adding that to the base, to the business that they bought. And that just makes it a more attractive business for for the next buyer. The buyers are about half private equity and half strategic buyers. And I think the entrepreneurs are just building really good businesses. So that's if I had to guess, Alex and Sarah, let me know, but this is what you think too, but this is just a silly wild guess is maybe 20% of the increase in multiples upon sale from what they bought it at is just because of the market's gotten more expensive or is willing to pay higher multiples. And the rest is the company's just a better company for the reasons I mentioned. I'd agree with that. I just think that I I agree that the professionalism and, and how much they've built the business goes a lot to increasing the valuation. It's, it's always hard to break it apart. And and we've had conversations about how to do that and assign, you know, if you, if you take a business from six times and you sell it at 10 times, you know, what, how do you break that down to, you know, just a valuations have gone up versus what you've added. And and it's really nearly impossible to dissect that. But, you know, I think your, your intuition there of the majority of it being driven by the, the, improvement in the business as opposed to just external forces is, is correct. And the significance of that, Alex, I think is if let's say multiples in the general market, the private, say the market for private companies, maybe public companies too, went down, if those multiples went down because interest rates went higher and stayed high or debt wasn't available or whatnot, that I think you would still get outsized returns from search funds compared to say larger private equity. That's not to say they're a great investing class for everybody, because don't forget, you can only put limited capital to work in them. And uh, it takes contributions from at least some of the investors for search funds to be successful. They have to be good board members who are good at mentoring 30-year-old new CEOs. But I do think returns probably will hold up. We just really see... If you take, take apart these companies that have really good returns, once they're sold, you realize that they really are have become much sort of more attractive companies to invest in for institutional capital and for strategic buyers because of what the entrepreneur did over the previous five to 10 years. Going along with that too, is as these exit multiples have increased, so has the searcher equity, the average equity that a searcher earns for their search has gone up as well. It sounds like that's kind of a, a lot of these factors and trends are, you know, connected, interconnected quite substantially. Anything anything uh, else you've noticed around search equity increasing over time that's notable or perhaps a, you know, a new factor that we haven't discussed already that's influencing that? The terms have been pretty stable for a long period of time. I think in the 
mid 2000s, maybe early 2000s, there was kind of a lack of attention and the terms for searchers got sort of looser for a while. And then it kind of reverted back over five years to more kind of what it was like when search started in the 90s or grew, first grew in the 90s. It really started in the 80s, did start in the 80s. But the terms are pretty standard and steady. Yeah, we've seen not a lot of change. And I've been actually talking to investors recently, just trying to do a survey on searcher terms and and the new CEO terms. And, and there hasn't been a lot of change and they are fairly consistent still. Average equity is up. So searchers who exited their business in the 2022 study earned an average of $7.6 million. So about $1.45 million a year. And that's certainly where searchers make most of their, their income. Cash compensation for a CEO is, is fairly consistent around, I think it's $250,000 a year. So it's, it's really on the equity side. I think one thing we have seen is as you get out to years five and six, there's more creativity around the exits where some investors may leave. There may be a recapitalization and you know, an opportunity for the searcher to realize some of that equity and, and have some a liquidity event, but still stay involved in an excellent business that's growing and build it. So I think there's more conversations being had around when you get to that exit, how is that managed and what does that look like, particularly if it's a, a great business. Yeah, I'd be curious too to learn if you have seen the types of exits evolve over time. Do you see more of that recap, but searcher still stays on as CEO? Do you see that happening more often now? Or, is, or perhaps maybe there's maybe just the sample size today is larger. And so we just get a wider variety. And that's that's less of a trend and more of just we have more options available to study. Like where where do you think exits have evolved, if any? I think more CEOs are at least in the in the companies that are successful or very, very successful, I'll say, I think you see more company, more CEOs, more of the entrepreneurs continuing as the CEO or maybe the general manager. I think that's a trend. I think private equity in general has figured out how to make some private equity investors figured out how to make it attractive for both financially and sort of with a level of kind of freedom and support for these entrepreneurs to stay as CEOs. I also think there's been just been a big change in understanding of what makes a good CEO a good that in the last say 20 or 30 years, you know, 30 in the nineties private equity didn't, which was just getting started, but they didn't hire or let young 30, say six year olds be CEOs of their companies. They'd go hire a much more experienced person. Now there's an understanding that young entrepreneurs can be fantastic CEOs. And that's part of the secret of a search fund is that someone can be a good CEO pretty quickly out of business school with the right personal characteristics, with the right business to learn in and the right kind of support from mentors and advisors. And I think more private equity investors understand that and are happy to give these guys a chance and realize how good they can be in the long run at continuing to build their companies. There have been a number of sales of companies, say five to seven years ago, that went on to make three to five to more times the equity invested by the new institutional investors, the new private equity investors. So that's just proof that it, that does work. 
I mean, yeah, the whole basis of the search fund model is that you don't need prior CEO or, you know, substantial operating experience to go run a successful company, which is really exciting to study as well. But there's, I'm sure over time, you've seen a number of interesting characteristics that, you know, broadly searchers have in common. This is kind of the, Sarah, you mentioned this is a question you get all the time, like who's the perfect searcher? What's the characteristic set for that perfect searcher? And obviously there's no like one set that always works, but any interesting trends or I've used the word trends a lot, but any interesting sets of characteristics or types of curiosity or, or focus that you've seen that have led to successful outcomes for folks? Yeah, Alex, you're right. There's no real perfect formula. And I do get asked it a lot. And I have run correlations on everything that we can, we can, and we've collected data on to see if there's anything that has a meaningful, positive correlation to success in either buying a company or, or achieving a higher return. We've looked at searcher background if they took an entrepreneurship class, entrepreneurship through acquisition class in school, the length of the search, their age, the type of search they ran, industries, expected growth rates at acquisitions. I mean, you name it, we've tried to find a, a, a leading thing. The only thing that's really jumped out is partnered searches do tend to have higher returns than solo searches. But as Peter said earlier, there's only so much you can do with that knowledge. You can't force a forcing a bad partnership is, is not going to give you a good success rate. And so, you know, it, it really comes down to more subjective kind of personality characteristics. I think one thing I see a lot in, in searchers that, that do well is they really want to be an entrepreneur. They really believe in this model. It's, it's not an easy, you know, search period. It's a, it can be a tough two years and they're really focused. They want it. And, and those that kind of drop off along the way, maybe it wasn't the right path for them. Maybe they decided that they you know, had a better opportunity come up and, and that's perfectly okay. And, and those people are successful in life and usually have learned something amazing in their search that they, they carry forward. But a successful searcher truly wants it and wants to be that entrepreneur. And that's their driving force. Another, another thing I noticed is, is their adaptability. When things aren't going right, they figure out how to, how to change it. They, they know that everything's not going to be perfect and they can, they can move within that as well as coachability. The mentorship is a big piece of how search is structured and how it works and being open to that input from their boards and their mentors is, is important. Yeah, there's, I mean, there, we put personal qualities that we think are important in the primer and we try and change them every time we revise the primer. Last time we revised was two years ago, but I've revised it, I don't know, four or five times before that. And they're just, they're pretty stable. So this is, we look at people who tend to be successful who really, really want to run a company this way. They just think, oh my gosh, this is the best way for me to do it instead of, say, a startup. They're people who want to make a lot of money for themselves and they, they want the control, autonomy, accountability of running a company in this way, but they also want to make money doing it. They, I mean, the, the characteristics are attention to detail, perseverance ability to build relationships and networks fast and strong, which is also known as sales, sales ability or interpersonal skills. That's a really critical one. I always look for that in people. 
if people ask me, do you, you know, do you think I can do a search? I'm, I tell them, look, are you, do you think you're in the top quartile of your business school cohort in that skill, ability to build relationships and network strong and fast? If not, you know, it's harder, it's going to be harder, but if you're really good at that, it's going to, you're like a lot of the people who've been really successful. Also, there's sort of confidence in one's own leadership ability. Even if you haven't really been a leader, you've been a, say in private equity, helping execute deals and, but but, and you had a little bit of leadership in college roles maybe, or before that in high school, but do you really believe you can run a company? Even if, even if you haven't, Sarah mentioned kind of the ability with kind of the willingness and ability to get advice from really smart people and listen to it and act on it quickly. That's one I've seen a couple people at all the other qualities. They didn't have that and it led them down a bad path or they ended up down a bad path flexibility, where they live, how they operate, how they can learn how to do things new, new things. Modest lifestyle seems to be important in some way. And there's this kind of humility, or maybe it's ambition, right? It's sort of, I really want to do something big and run a company, but I'm also humble. I know I'm kind of an idiot and I don't, I have no right to do this, but I want to do it. And I think I can do it, but I, I know I'm lacking some things. I'm going to find ways to fill in those holes that I'm lacking so that I'm likely to be successful because I don't want to take huge risk. I want to do this, but I want to do it in a kind of a smart way. So my risks are as low as I can manage them. Yeah. I wonder, do you, do you see for for those folks that perhaps feel more out of their element running a company or don't have perhaps some of the more technical skills, do you see them being pretty effective at building teams? Like there's lots of things that I don't know if I was running a company, there's lots of places that I would rather find someone who's really good at this task and go hire them. Do you, do you see if, do you see searchers who feel out of their element? Do you see them going to build teams and effectively kind of protecting their downsides a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. They learn to be good at it. I mean, with those qualities I mentioned, they find ways to learn how to be good at it. And, you know, a lot of them have had chances to do that before. They maybe came from, let's say they came from investment banking where a team, it's a different kind of team. They're a team of highly motivated people who are happy to work 80, 90 hours a week and be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars as a 24 year old. That's not the same kind of team you're managing, but some of those people, many of them came, you know, played on sports teams or were in plays in college and have some team skills. They just, it's not on their resume exactly in from their last job. You know, let's see, Kevin Tawil was a very good college soccer player. He was a fantastic hockey player in high school, too, and a great soccer player. So he's had lots of team experience and built a great team at Ashuri. And David Dotson, you know, had team experience and, for instance, was a rock climber growing up and knew how to work with other people closely in intense situations. Kirk Reedinger and Jamie Turner, who had arguably the first search fund, the first pure search fund after Jim Southern had the kind of sort of first search fund. Anyway, they had sports backgrounds, so they were they knew how to do that. I think I'm trying to think of some local recently successful people. Yeah, they, they people have some of those skills and they definitely learn them and develop them because they're flexible and humble and take advice and you know, and business school is great for that. MBA teaches you most MBA programs, I think all of them teach you some team building skills and so yeah, people do build those skills. I think I'm off topic on answering your question exactly, but <laughs> no, that's great. Sarah, you also mentioned that one interesting trend that has been fairly consistent is partnered searches having higher returns. 
do you think kind of this idea of building a team and, you know, shoring up your weaknesses with the skills of other folks, do you think that partnered searches derive some of their outperformance from that where a searcher might partner with someone who has complementary skills that they don't have? And that together makes a more effective search or a more effective operation of a company. What are some driving factors you think from, from partnered searches? Yeah. So I think it, I think it comes through in two ways. One, during the search stage, you have a teammate with you. So you can bounce ideas off each other. You can pick each other up when you're down. You can stay motivated. So I think it can help in the search stage to have someone right there by your side and match step to, to keep it moving forward. And you have twice the, the manpower to get through what you're working on. In operating the company, you have two really high achieving, smart, hopefully complimentary people at the top. So you have your, your really close partner, your right hand person in leading the company. And I think that that does help. I've heard from individual searchers or solo searchers that whether you have a partner or not, you need a really good number two when you're running your company. So you, you need that partner in some way. They might not have been your partner through the search, but bringing in a partner, whether it be somebody internally at the company when you buy it that, that you trust and, and you can promote and you can work with. But it's really important to have that team that you trust around you, uh, whether it was a technically partnered search or not. But having those partners in leading the company is, is a big key to building it and then, and then being successful. I think that's right. I think, you know, if, if you get a tiger by the tail, if you find out yourself in a really in a good company, in a great industry, and the industry is really great, two of you can make more with that if you work well together, if you can divide responsibilities and not let egos get in the way well, then you can take maybe better advantage of that. But, you know, of the four newest companies that were more than a 10x return in this last study, I think they were all all single searchers. So there's no there's no formula. Is that right, Sarah? Were they all single searchers? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. We're, we're seeing a lot of really solid returns coming from solo searchers. So uh, I think it's... If you look over the trend over time, partners have definitely been better. But we're starting to see uh, solo searchers had some really good home runs here. Within the 2024 study and onward, what are some data sets that you don't currently have, but you'd be excited to add to studies in the future? Yeah, we need to, you know, that's what we'll work on in the next 18 months here is, is thinking about what that, what that needs to be. What, what did we miss this go round or what's new that we can capture? One thing I am thinking about that I'd like to maybe dig into deeper is exit multiples. So we, we chatted about that earlier in this podcast. And, and I would like to see if there's more we can put around that to better understand how that's trending. So maybe maybe we can add some more data. It, it all depends on when we break it down and do the analysis, how it looks, whether there's some interesting takeaway that can be shared. But that's something I'd like to dig into more. And then outside of you know, new questions, you know, kind of a bigger, a bigger way to look at it is uh, we only look at traditional searchers. 
I think it'd be really difficult to go after self-funded just to identify the the target group, but perhaps the the single sponsor or accelerator model, we might be able to do a similar study on that just to understand how those returns are performing, how those searchers are similar or different to traditional searchers as as that path has has gotten more popular and now there's more data there. I think it, it, you know, in the future, whether it's 2024 or 25, but I think there's something that we could do with that, with that group of the search community. Yeah, that'd be an interesting place to go would be self-funded searchers. There's, I think what makes the study today so interesting is that you have, you know, 20 years of data on searchers on traditional search. Whereas if you were starting to dive into self-funded search, it might, maybe it takes a few years before you have a strong enough data set to draw conclusions from. Or just in that first study, you're just asking self-funded searchers for a ton of of previous you know, return information that is more of a heavy lift for them. Like, how do you think you would approach kind of adding a new type of searcher, like the self-funded searchers or accelerator searchers, by also being able to gather enough data from them to draw some conclusions? I think the accelerator we can do because we have the investor network that we can work with to leverage some of that and they'll have all that history as well as who all of the searchers they have worked with are. So if we could work with the investor community on that, then I think that's doable. The self-funded side, I, I, I agree. It's we, It would have to start now and go forward. I don't think we could go retroactively very easily because there will be a bias towards successful searchers. It's going to be hard to find somebody who three years ago started a self-funded search and didn't buy something and moved on to find them, to, to get data from them. And, and that's my concern even going forward with doing this type of study on self-funded searchers is finding a truly representative subset of, of individuals and without that kind of bias towards the successful ones. So that's, I think that's going to be a much harder lift to really make it a, a truly representative study where because we have the investor involvement, on both the traditional and accelerated side, we can we can identify a bit easier who should be in the study and then have access to them and, and their information. Do you have a good sense for scale for how large the self-funded search community is compared to the traditional one? I don't have a really good idea. I know it's probably multiples bigger. And, and within self-funded, you have full-time self-funded, you have part-time self-funded. So it's it's a bit more amorphous in terms of of putting a, a, a number on it. But I, you know, based on what I've seen in the broader community, there's there certainly seems to be a lot more self-funded searchers out there. They're looking for a bit smaller businesses, I think, and and you know, they have a bit of a different approach than the traditional. And and so it's it's hard it's hard to know though I I don't really know I don't know if Peter has any any more insights I mean, we we focus mostly on the traditional side but, but there are a lot of self funded searchers out there for sure I don't I don't know I would guess it's sort of fifty percent bigger really if you look at people who are searching full time but I I don't know yeah it's definitely hard to tell because I would imagine for for part time searchers it's do you still count them as a as a full searcher? Because uh, every traditional searcher, at least that I've seen, is searching full time, whereas self funded tends to blur that line quite a bit more. So I imagine that would be perhaps more challenging to count or keep track of. And that's with folks who are searching part time as well. It's it's easier for those folks to 
switch out of searching and go take a different opportunity that may be more exciting. And so it seems like folks go in and out of searching on the self-funded side more often than traditional. So it'll be interesting to hear more about how you decide to tackle self-funding. I think it's an interesting space to study and would love to get more information on it, but definitely prevents, presents a few challenges. How can folks help you? Like what kinds of help from the community would you, would be, is, is most helpful for you in assembling you know, studies in the future or refining how you assemble and clean data? Like how can folks help you if, they, if they'd like to? Just participation. And we really rely on everybody within the community. So for investors, you know, please let me know who you're investing in and who you're backing and what you're seeing. That's, that's the starting point of how we identify people. As the search community is growing and there's more and more investors and, and, and more and more kind of circles out there, it's, it's really important that we, we capture everybody. And so it's, I really, really appreciate all the input and support that the investors give us. And then the searchers and CEOs just keep filling out the surveys. <laughs> Thank you so much for that because they're they're long and they can be a heavy lift. But I really, really do appreciate it. So it's it's staying involved in the study, even though it, it's not always you know the most convenient thing to do. But from the broader community, the support for that is is hugely important for for getting this as accurate and complete as possible. I'm also always open to new ideas. So. We talked about what other areas could the study touch on or what can we do in future studies. And, you know, I'm always listening to the community and trying to see what new trends are coming up or what questions there are that we can't answer, but could possibly answer. So anyone's always free to reach out to me and email me or, or call me and, and, you know, share some thoughts because I, I welcome that. Absolutely. We can add your email to the episode description for folks to, to send notes to you. Moving into closing questions, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? I was a communist and in, in part of the Stanford Communist Club in the Marxist Club, actually, so to distinguish. So that's that belief has changed. I do think that free, so private markets solve a lot of problems. So they certainly need a lot of supervision and government intervention on some things like inequality, both based on financial things and race and gender, for instance. So that's, <laughs> that's changed. That's been over a long time. You know, I think for me, it's that being the, you know, loudest voice or, or most active participant in the room doesn't necessarily make you appear to be the smartest that over time I've learned that listening is actually a really, really, really useful skill set. And in almost all environments, listening and processing can make you a much more valuable contributor than just sharing your ideas. As an introvert, that was my motto basically in, in high school and college. That was, I, I'm right there with you. Peter, do you have any other change beliefs? You know, just a much smaller one, but I used to, th I had a great board of directors, included Irv Grosbeck and Bob Oster and Dick Allen and then Kevin Tawil and Craig Bomba, um, who are all still involved in the community. And they were just really, really helpful through difficult times and big decisions. And I thought all boards should look like that. As I've come to realize, I've been on kind of 20 boards since then, maybe 18 boards total since then. 
there can be fantastic boards that have very different approaches and each board is a little bit different. So that was one thing that it took me a while to learn that I've learned over the last 10 years. Any particular examples of unique strategies or structures or personalities of boards as a group that you've noticed? You know, it does, there doesn't have to be, yes, there, I mean, there's a board structure where there's sort of one board member who's a lead and, or maybe at the chairman and is kind of in most contact with the CEO and kind of coaching and mentoring the CEO. But uh, that doesn't have to be the only way of doing it. I think that's a good one. It's important to have a lead director, especially early in a board. But there are also boards where different board members mentor the CEO on different topics and different qualities, and they each kind of help help him or her or them in different ways. And they're sort of share the share the load. Those both work great, and there's no real dominant or lead investor one might serve in that role, but it can it can move around, and that probably depends as much on the entrepreneur and kind of how they how what their relationship is with each and how they want that support. I'm trying to think of other tactics and strategies. I mean, they're definitely more formally arranged boards, including boards that during the search in Europe, it's very common that the board there's a board during the search and the board meets monthly with the with the entrepreneur and gives them a lot of feedback and even direction. And there's a lot of strong support there. And that does, that's not the case in the U S and I think both work actually very well. So those are, those are two different approaches. Alex, one thing I've heard from searchers recently, and I have a lot of discussions with prospective searchers and current searchers and, and then, you know, new CEOs about boards. It's, it's really understanding what you need as the CEO and how you build your board and where you need the support and putting on people who can support you in, in kind of each area with different expertise and, and have managing those relationships and the right board for one CEO is not necessarily the right one for a different person. So it's truly understanding what you need and, and who can provide that and then building those relationships. What's the best business you've ever seen? I think the best business model I've ever seen is actually the mutual fund industry. Um, there was a, <laughs> there's one, there was a business that spun out of a great investment firm. The investment firm's called Hellman and Friedman. Many people know of it. Sort of the first white knight, one of the first white knight investors. And they spun out a business called Artisan, which just had amazing margins and did a great job earning returns for their investors, for their customers who were institutional investors for the most part. And they just scaled incredibly fast with great margins. So that I think that's maybe the best one I've ever seen in the, but they're, I'd say now, you know, software, maybe the right kind of software that's scalable, either buying various software companies or just a software business that can scale may, may be one of the best because if it's a, you know, certain, some, certain of those businesses keep their customers forever and they grow their customer <laughs> revenue. So their net revenue retention. So what a customer spends next year is more than this year. And the year after that is more than the year after that. One example of that is Snowflake, which people know about, but Snowflake is a great, is a great business. Their net revenue retention, even as a huge public company now, is like 170%. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's the, that's my second one. That is amazing. That's a good one. I've always loved the aggregates business. I know that's a bit 
but not in the search world, but it's just got such a defensible moat around it. If you have a, a gravel company in an urban area, it only makes sense to ship your gravel so far, given the price point and it's very defensible and everybody needs it. And it's, it's, a, it's just a really interesting business model that is, you can have it on a very small scale or a large scale, but it's, it's, it's a really defensible business with a, with a, you know, constant stream of customers that is nobody wants it. It's got the, the NIMBY going for it, not in my backyard. So not a lot of new ones are aggregate pets are being built. And if you've got one, um, you've, you've got a really built in steady customer base. I love that one. That's a great one, Sarah. We, we actually looked at a, one of those businesses, I think it was called rock sand, gravel, sand and gravel, rock sand, sand and gravel. And we tried to buy it and weren't, weren't able to, but I agree. Those can be fantastic businesses. Yeah. That's a new one for the podcast. I've, I've yet to hear someone else share uh, a gravel business as their, their best business. That's fantastic. I would love to keep chatting, but we're out of time, but thank you both so much for coming on the podcast to share about the Stanford search study and, you know, a thousand topics in between. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. It's been fun talking to you, Alex. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. 